So um, for the last few weeks, um, we've been talking about the Eightfold Noble Path, or the Noble Eightfold Path. And um, I haven't done any, I haven't done a path talk or a list talk in a long time. And partly it came out of um, <clears throat> some of the questions and answers and dialogue that we do more generally here in the group. And that some people were wondering why, what about the lists and why do they have all those lists and do we need to know the lists? And so I thought we would do a list and then see if it's helpful, helpful to your practice, helpful to your understanding, helpful to um, integrating the meditation and the uh, um, teachings of the Buddha. And I did an overview of the path the first week. Really, the essence of the overview is you are the path. That that's the most important thing you can get. You are the path. The path is not outside of you. It's not just some you know conceptual idea. No, it's living within you. If there's a path to freedom, you are the path to freedom. Everything else is skillful means to learn how to, how to navigate that terrain of you being the path. So it's nothing outside of us, the path. Once we get some sense of that, that, that what we're looking for is right here, then we want to see how can we use what the Buddha taught as the Noble Eightfold Path, which is right view, right intention, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right um, uh, effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. These are the eight limbs of the path. And the, the limbs are divided up in baskets. There's the wisdom basket of right view and right intention. There's the uh, basket of virtue or sila or morality, which is, has to do with action, speech, and livelihood. And then there's the contemplative basket, which is mindfulness, effort, concentration. So we, we began to look at right view last week, which has to do with how do we see things? How, how, are we, how are we understanding? It's either right view or right understanding is also a very good translation. And by right, we also, when we did the overview, we talked about what right means. Right means to bring into accord with the truth, to bring into alignment with the truth, to begin to center ourselves in the truth as the way to walk the path. And so right thought or right uh, intention or right um, action is action that brings us into accord with the truth. Right concentration is concentration that brings us into alignment with the truth, with the Dharma. Truth is um, often trans Dharma is often translated as truth. So we began to look at view last week, and there were two key points to view, two really path factors in terms of the view. One is um, karma, the truth of karma. Simply put, meaning our actions have consequences. We're not, everything may be empty, but we're still responsible. It's one of the great paradoxes of Buddhism. There may be no solidity, but there's still karma. There's still the actions and the results of actions. And then the other important path factor in terms of freedom 
in, in the Noble Eightfold Path is the understanding and realization of the Four Noble Truths. And, uh, and all of you have some, at least intuition of this, or you wouldn't be here, that there is suffering, that there's the cause, of su cause or causes of suffering, that there's a possibility of freedom for suffering, and that there is the path, the Eightfold Path, which leads to the end of suffering. The second fact, the second uh, limb of the path is right, is known as right intention, and we'll talk about that a bit tonight. Right intention is also sometimes translated as right thought, or wise thought, or right aspiration, or right resolve. These are all different translations of the same word. I'll, for our purposes, I'll generally use the word intention, right intention, wise intention, skillful intention. And when, um, um, when you think about, and, and as we begin with view, view will condition our intention. How we see things will condition how, how we uh, value them and then orient towards them. And then, of course, our intention will condition our actions. And so the simplest image I can give you for this is if a pickpocket sees a Buddha, meets a Buddha, all he sees are his pockets, right? Because that's his view of the world is how, you know, is all about how can I get what I need and the intention is to get it and so you look for what's going to get you what you need. That's what's important and your intention is to get that. Or you could think about how you see the world and then that, how that impacts your intention. If you see the world uh, as a friendly place, then your intentions towards people might be friendly. If you see it as a dangerous place, your intention might be to protect yourself. And then your actions will follow either way, either way. And so how we see things will condition our intention, and then our intention becomes a really important part of our life. <clears throat> this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He says, thus, talking about right view and right intention, thus a penetrating view of the nature of existence, now he's talking about a deep understanding here through the meditative practice, thus a penetrating view of the nature of existence gained through deep reflection and contemplation and validated through investigation brings a restructuring of values which sets the heart and mind towards the goal commensurate with the new vision. And so one of the ways we can understand that is as we practice and as we start to practice mindfulness and we start to have experiences of insight of, oh, oh, this is how my mind works. This is how uh, uh, reality is. And the simplest insight is just to see that things are impermanent. Or another 
simple insight. Maybe it's not so simple, but it's an insight that we may have as we start to see the impersonal nature of uh, experience, right? There's sounds, there's a thought, there's a feeling, there's a sensation. It's all happening. It's all happening whether we want it to be happening or not, whether we like it or not. It's all just happening. There's not actually a lot of control. When we start to have some insight, when we start to see that the meditation itself brings insight, and the insight starts to bring some freedom, oh, that we don't have to be controlled by our thoughts, we don't have to be at the, in the thrall of our emotions, that will reorient our life. And that will, as he says here, It'll um, restructure our values towards goals commensurate with the new vision. And the new vision, of course, when the insider begins to rise, is about freedom. That there is freedom from suffering. That it doesn't mean, <clears throat> and that even that, oh, it doesn't mean pain goes away or difficulty goes away. Or that, you know, if we're you know, out of a job, all of a sudden we magically get a job. No, it means that we can start to be present with things as they are and find that place that is not bound by the conditions. That we don't have control over the conditions of our lives. We have some input, but we have some resource. There's something here that is not bound, that is not limited by the conditions of experience. And when we see that, that begins to reorient our values and what's important to us, and then our intentions start to change about where we're going to put our time, our energy, our resources, our money, our intelligence, our creativity, etc., etc. Now, I want to start first with a very basic level of intention. I just want to start with this, and this is, and then I'll differentiate, I'll talk a little about the different kinds of intention there are. The first level of intention, and here's, here's a way to, to get a, a hit of it. Don't move. Whatever, however you are in it, don't move. Just really stay still for a moment, for a, for a minute, or five, we'll see. Stay very still. And if, you, if I have you stay still for five minutes, or 10 minutes, or 15 minutes, you'll start to notice that you're uncomfortable in some way, shape, or form. Right? That's one of the first things that'll happen. And then, and that you may be, first of all, uncomfortable um, in your mind because I'm telling you what to do. Like, you might have a reaction to that. Even if you don't have that level of uncomfortable, just not moving the body will be uncomfortable. And you'll see there'll be this intention to move the body. This is the most fundamental level of intention. And in Buddhist psychology, they say there are many, many, many intentions happening in each mind moment. 
that the mind's not actually generally quiet and clear enough to see this level of intention. And it's why we want to stop. Because then we can see, all of a sudden you'll be sitting here, and I'm saying, don't move, don't move, don't move. And all of a sudden you're going to go, you're going to move. But you can actually start to see, oh, there's an intention to move. And sometimes it's a thought, but usually it's even more subtle, more subconscious than that. There's a little felt sense in the body, a little, uh, and it's like, oh, I'm ready to move, or I'm ready to act. And you can really see this on a longer retreat. Some of you have started moving, I noticed. I didn't say you could move yet. (laughs) And you all just moved with that laugh, come on. Uh, that's a harder intention to see, it's that laughter. <clears throat> but um, um, on long retreats, at a certain point, usually after a number of days, we'll actually give the teaching, instead of just being mindful of the breath, mindful of the body, mindful of feelings, mindful of thoughts, mindful of sounds, mindful of beginning and end of things, to actually start to be mindful of the intention the intention to sit, the intention to end the sitting, the intention to stand up, the intention to walk, the intention to reach for the door. There's an intention before every action, it's said. Every action. And so just, I just want to kind of put that out as a very basic level of intention. Most of them you will not even notice. They happen so quick. But when you pay attention, you can start to notice, oh, especially the big ones. Like, oh, I want to get up now. I've been sitting here long enough. That's the intention to move. Or maybe you notice sometimes intention can be more, more obvious, like maybe there's somebody here you wanted to talk to during the break. You never talked to them. Maybe you're a little attracted to them or something. You might notice the intention and then feel shy and notice the intention and feel shy and then find, and then you act. But there's an intention there. And it's really an important part of understanding how body and mind work from a Buddhist perspective. Sometimes, and this is really an odd feeling when it happens, sometimes on a longer retreat you'll start to see it and you see the body's like a puppet. The mind has an intention, or the heart has an intention, and the body reacts, and that's what's happening. We won't go too far along that way. But but one of the reasons why I wanted to say this was meditation allows us to see our intention. Pausing in daily life will help us see our intention. And the intention we want to pay uh, attention to in daily life is our intention to create good or to create harm. That's a very important intention. That's created, that's um, uh, connected to right intention and the path factors that lead to right or noble intention. So, for example, you might notice um, maybe somebody you uh, have been having a hard time with ends up calling you. And you might notice there, there can be different intention. There might be the intention to try and uh, make things better, or there might be the intention to jab them a little bit, right? 
No, anybody ever have that? Not just me here? Okay, I just want to check and see. And, and, and we want to be aware of those intentions so then we begin to have choice about how we respond. You don't have to get rid of the, oh, I want to jab this person. In fact, you can't actually get rid of it, not mechanically. It might go away on its own at some point. But you can see it and you see, oh, I don't want to act on that intention. That's not the intention I want to live my life from. And that, this level of intention is very important. And at a certain point, and at first it may seem a little mechanical, at a certain point it's almost intuitive. You just feel it when there's right intention and wrong intention. And especially wrong intention often comes with a contraction in the body or a contraction in the heart or a contraction in the mind. And right intention or, or intention that leads to well-being, it's just not a contraction. That's not what it's coming out of. It's coming out of goodwill, it's coming out of kindness, it's coming out of compassion, it's coming out of objectivity rather than some reactivity. And I'm starting with a very basic level, but you'll hear how these all tie into the path factor. And the other important piece to, that I think is valuable to get about intention is it's a way to begin to incline the mind and heart in certain directions. That we have some choice. Oh no, I don't want to go in this direction. I'd really actually rather go in this direction. And then to incline the heart and mind in that direction. And the Buddha says, he said, what a person considers and reflects upon for a long time, to that his or her mind will bend and incline. In other words, where we put our attention, where we focus, what we incline towards will actually shape us in some way, shape, or form. And here's another from the Buddha. This is the Dhammapada. <clears throat> um, this is one of the most famous teachings of the Buddha, and I'll read you a few translations just to get a flavor of it. He says, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. That's why right intention is sometimes called right thought. Uh, all that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind or heart and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox it draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world, speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. And here's another translation, just so you hear a little difference. That was Thomas Byron. This is... Um, this is Gil Fransdale. Uh, all experience is preceded by the mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speaker act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by the mind, led by the mind, made by the mind. 
Speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. You get to hear the poetry also of the Dharma. This is a third version from uh, uh, Tanis, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He said, phenomena, phenomena are preceded by the heart. Remember heart and mind, same word. Same word in, in the, in the uh, Buddhist tradition, really. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made by the heart. If you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart, the track of the ox that pulls it. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made by the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves you. Now, I want to be careful here because then people think, Oh, if they think a bad thought, they're a bad person. That's not what they're saying here. They're saying if you think bad thoughts and you believe them, you're going to get in trouble. That will lead to trouble. To be mindful of, oh yeah, and by bad thought, I mean, you know, the bad thought could be, oh, I'm pissed and I hate this person. You know, if you act on that, if you don't, if there's no space, if there's no contemplating our experience, our reactivity, then we'll just act on it. That's what people have done for the whole history of humanity and that's created tremendous suffering for the whole history of humanity. Wars, colonialism, uh, you know, slavery, um, uh, any kind of discrimination, whether by gender or race or sexual orientation or all of it comes because people have certain ideas and they believe that these people are wrong, these people are dangerous, or, these, or, or that it's my right to have everything. And then they act on it. And so to look at our intention, what's the intention behind that? The intention for those things is conquering, um, you know, wealth, um, power, um, we want to look at what kind of intention leads to true happiness, leads to freedom, leads to the well-being of all. So the path, when we talk about the noble uh, Eightfold Path and, and right or wise or uh, uh, beneficial intention, there are three factors that are stressed in the Buddhist teaching. And there are the, they're called the path factors. And one is the uh, intention or the resolve of renunciation. One is the uh, intense intention or the resolve of goodwill. And one is the intention or the resolve of non-harming. And, and simply put, renunciation equals letting go. Goodwill is the cultivation, the intention for loving kindness, for friendliness, just pure friendliness, un unabashed friendliness. Um, and non-harming is the intention of compassion, of kindness, of care. And to begin to 
uh, develop right intention is to begin to incline the heart and mind in the direction of letting go, of friendliness, and of compassion. And, and to not incline the heart and mind towards grasping ill will and harmfulness, which are the opposites. And they bring suffering. Now, again, I want to be careful here. One of the reasons why I don't, off, I don't like the list is because they easily become spiritual superegos, spiritual critics. Oh, that's not how I think, or that's not what I feel, or, you know, and so I'm bad now, or I, sh I should leave now. And that's not how we work with this kind of paradox. Um, uh, I remember my first long retreat, I went into my teacher. Actually, not my first long, but a long, very long retreat I was sitting. I went in to see Joseph Goldstein. And I said, I said, when I look at my mind, all I see is greed, aversion, and delusion. And he said, great. <laughs> and and it was, that, that was a good interview. Because one thing I was seeing clearly, I was seeing these qualities of mind that are there. And I was acknowledging them because they were true. They weren't, they weren't all that was there, but at the moment they were, it was quite striking to see the desire and the wanting and the grasping and the pushing away and the denying and the confusion and the fear and the, all the beliefs about what would make me happy, but it wasn't, nothing was working. And then to come in and acknowledge it means that that's the first step. Seeing suffering. Remember when we talked about the Four Noble Truths last week? Seeing suffering is the beginning of the end of suffering. We want to see our suffering. We want to see how the mind works. We want to see our, our uh, uh, grasping, our ill will, our harmfulness. We don't want, we're not seeing them to judge them. That's not why we're paying attention. That's not why we're being mindful. We're seeing them so we begin to have choice. So we can see, oh, they're there, but there's something more there. There's the mindfulness. Is, the mindfulness is not what it's mindful of. The knowing is not what's being known. What's being known and the knowing is separate. The, know, the knowing is actually free from what's being known. The knowing is not bound by the conditions. <clears throat> so I hope that's clear. I would really feel bad if you take away from this talk, oh, you have these thoughts and you're bad now. It's not what we're saying. No, you want to be aware of when we have you know, reactive thoughts, pissed off thoughts, fearful thoughts, whatever they are in order to see that that's not all of who we are, in order to see that we can work with them and to see what happens if we stay mindful of those experiences. Because the paradox of staying mindful with an experience like that is it can begin to self-liberate with awareness, with the knowing itself. And why, why can it self-liberate? because it's impermanent. It's not who you are in essence. It's a 
conditioned arising. And if we pay attention to it, if we don't grasp it or push it away, we just are mindful of it, it will do what all conditioned experience does, which is it will evaporate because there's nothing solid there. It's just certain conditions coming together and sooner or later they will dissolve. And we're beginning to create other conditions and this is the karma of meditating itself, right? Actions have consequences. We're supporting uh, 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 certain, these actions are very skillful for freeing the mind, for creating peace of mind, for opening the heart and, and releasing the heart. <clears throat> so as we begin to understand right view and right intention, we see that our view, our understanding that letting go is just commonsensical. Letting go makes total sense. Why does letting go make sense? Because we can't hold on to anything. That's right. <laughs> we can't. You know, maybe we can hold on to this paper for a while. But sooner or later, if we sit here, it'll just dissolve into nothing. We can try to hold on to things, but actually, have you noticed yet that you can't hold on to anything? Anyone? Any state of mind? Any experience? Job? House? Computer? You know, what, what do we think we can hold on to? Some idea? Belief? everything changes. That's the nature of reality. Reality is permeated, penetrated, woven with impermanence. And to come into alignment with the truth means to come into alignment with that truth of impermanence. And so as we begin to align and manifest renunciation, letting go, we also begin to see that it's for our well-being, that it brings happiness, that it brings ease. You ever, you ever note, watch when you've maybe been in a relationship and you've held, you know, and the relationship's ended, it's gone, and you're holding on and holding on and holding on, and then finally something relaxes. And it's, it's okay. Not only is it okay, <laughs> we feel better. <laughs> it's like a relief, finally. Okay, I actually don't, that person, you know, I'm okay. You know, maybe it'd be great to be with that person, but it's okay. At some point, Joseph Goldstein, that was his big mantra, was it's okay, right? Whatever people would come, he would say, well, try this mantra, it's okay. Whatever the, you know, it's okay for the moment, it's okay. 
So I want to say some more about renunciation because most people don't even like the word renunciation, right? I mean, that's like not a hip word these days. You don't see people with like, you know, leather jackets saying the renunciates on the back or, you know, or something like that, you know. I mean, you know, let's face it, we're a culture that likes to have what we want. That, that's a very strong part of our culture, and especially being uh, in the, uh, American, right? Americans, we, we can do what we want, we can get what we want, and that's somehow we have that idea. <clears throat> I think we're losing it a little bit slowly, but... so. As you know, I like to go to the dictionary. Here's some of the definitions of renounce or renunciation. It means to renounce the world, to withdraw from worldly interests in order to lead a spiritual life. This is a very classical understanding of renunciation. This is the outer manifestation of the understanding of renunciation. We would all leave the world, we would go to a monastery, and we could be spiritual there. And that's a, that's, there's a certain truth to that. It's why there are monasteries. They're just devoted to living the holy life, as we would say in Buddhism. And it's a beautiful thing to do if you're called to do that. Even to go on retreat, like if you go to Spirit Rock for you know, a week or 10 days or a month or a few months, you're, you're doing that. This is you're living a life of renunciation. It's definitely very high-class renunciation <laughs> at Spirit Rock. No, no doubt about it. If you go to Asia, you'll experience different class of renunciation. Um, but, it is, but there is um, a letting go of things we think we need and living with less. Even at Spirit Rock, you, you're not reading, you're not writing, you don't have a computer, you don't have a phone, you don't have newspapers, you don't have TV, there's no, you're not communicating in the city, you're actually renouncing the world in order to pay attention to this human experience, to what's actually here, to, to the path. This is the path, so we renounce everything else so we can get a more and more uh, uh, simplified and clarified uh, um, um, opportunity to pay attention to what this human experience is. And if you become a ma monastic, it's even more. Basically, the monastic community in Buddhism uh, um, uh, has four, four things. They have uh, a bowl for food, robes, medicine, and, and um, shelter. And that's it. Basically, that's all, that's what, everything else is given up. Money is given up, and sexuality, sex, acting on one's sexuality is given up, and all kinds of things are all given up. And it's an amazing thing to do for even a short period of time to see that actually we could be fine with so little, that we could be fine with so little and this is true of every person here, even though you may not believe me on this, trust me, for a minute even, that actually you could be fine. All you need is food, clothes, shelter, medicine. And that your well-being could be discovered right here, 
right, right where you are, right as you are. Now, it doesn't mean you might not study suffering very deeply in the process of learning that. You, you might, we might. But, but there's something the monastic community has to teach us that's very important there, that we could actually live with so little. And, and really, for all of us, this is an important part of being a, a, a renunciate uh, in the whole, in daily life, in, in lay life, which is actually knowing whatever we have, that actually we could be okay without it. That in daily life, we need a lot to function, right? We need cars or computers or whatever it is we need to function. But if we lost it all, we could still be okay. We lost it all. And we may lose it all. I was just reading this. This is today's Chronicle. Uh, generally, not a lot to read in there, but I found something. Uh, it's about um, uh, um, celebrities and uh, athletes and what happens to them in terms of money. Despite having one of the most lucrative careers in show business, Michael Jackson reportedly died $400 million in debt. I mean, isn't that, like, that's a shocking. You know, Ed McMahon, who also died this week, narrowly avoided foreclosure on his home. Actor Stephen Baldwin, former baseball slugger Jose Canseco, and former basketball star Latrell Freewell, Latrell Sprewell all lost their homes to foreclosure recently, and boxer Evander Holyfield is headed that way. Of course, he's got a 109-room house. Right? This is the opposite of renunciation. And then everything, these people have tremendous amounts of money. And then she goes on to talk about all these other people who filed for bankruptcy Randy Quaid, Burt Reynolds, Kim Bassinger, Gary Coleman, MC Hammer, Wayne Newton, Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, Tony Braxton, Latoya Jackson, you know, that you never know when you're going to lose whatever you have. And I'm assuming most people here don't have quite that, the means of, you know, some of these people. And it's hard for people who don't understand that actually we can be okay with very little. That our true nurturance, our true sustenance is innate. It's not from the outside. It's nice to have nice things. I'm not, at all, I'm not, a, I'm not preaching a renunciation that says don't have nice things. I more I like the flavor of renunciation which says enjoy what you have but see clearly everything goes everything goes comes and goes and if it doesn't go well we're going to go anyways so it goes in a different way so renunciation the level for us as lay people means to be in the world, but not of it. To be in the world, but not believe that it's the world that's going to make us happy. Or the things of the world that are going to make us happy. That's a more accurate way to put it. That if we believe that, we'll, we'll suffer. 
that's suffering. But if we see that there's, there's so, much, so much creative and amazing and beautiful um, manifestation that we're here and we can enjoy. I mean, the internet, or if you like computers, or if you like bicycles, or whatever you might enjoy, enjoy it. Enjoy it fully. But don't believe your ultimate happiness is based on that. <clears throat> There's another, in the dictionary, there was another octave to the understanding of renunciation. It said to give up oneself. To give up oneself. And this is another octave of practice. It doesn't mean you give away yourself. It means you start to see clearly that the self we've taken ourselves to be is also conditioned. It's generally an idea, a belief, a series of impressions and, and experiences that we coagulate around. And then we say, this is me. And we lose touch with that knowing, with the spaciousness, the openness of the mindfulness that's totally free, that is not based on the conditions. So again, for some reason, I'm having a Joseph Goldstein night here, but another quote from Joseph. He said, the expression of emptiness is love because emptiness means emptiness of self. When there is no self, there is no other. That duality is created by the idea of self or I, of ego. When there's no self, there's a unity, a communion. And without the thought of I'm loving someone, love becomes the natural expression of that oneness. Now when we see the unity of all things, its characteristic is love. <clears throat> so one more piece about the definition of renunciation it continued in the dictionary it says not only to give up oneself but to give oneself up to some influence some action or to abandon oneself or devote oneself entirely and so as our view clarifies as we begin to see the power and the possibility of the four noble truths we start to intend to enact that reality, to enact the skillful means that will bring that to a reality, to bring that to a manifestation in our lives, bring that freedom forward. And so we begin to devote ourselves to something beyond ourselves. We devote ourselves to the Dharma, to the truth. Again, from Bhikkhu Bodhi, he says, the tool the Buddha holds out to free the mind from clinging is understanding. Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of clinging, when we investigate closely with keen attention, clinging falls away by itself. And in this investigation, our concern must not be with what is pleasant, but with what is true. And so there's a devotion to the truth, a devotion to the Dharma, 
a devotion to something beyond just oh getting our what we want or what makes us feel secure or or, or is pleasurable. He says we have to be in this investigation our concern must not be with what is pleasant but with what is true. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true even at the cost of our own comfort. Real security always lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. That, that, that's, that line is worth the whole evening, so I'm going to say it again. Real security, real security, true refuge, real security always lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. It's nice if they're both there together, <laughs> but if, you, if it's one or the other, go for the truth. Go for the truth. And then that devotion to something beyond ourselves has a certain power. And we start, to, we start to give ourselves to that truth, to the Dharma. From Ajahn Suchito, who said, What sustains the spiritual life is that it becomes independent of one's own volition. It has a life of its own that one comes to recognize and serve. So I'm going to try to cram in a little more here before the end. Um, the first path factor of renunciation is a wisdom factor. The other two, which has to do with, with goodwill and non-harming, are really heart factors in the sense that they, they're, about, they're relational. The first is about our own understanding of freedom. The next two begins to open up to the understanding of being here together, all of us. And, and this quote from Henry Miller, secret Buddhist, uh, really kind of sums it up and, and really connects the two. He says, I know what the greatest cure is. It is to give up, to relinquish, to renounce, to surrender, so that our little hearts may beat in unison with the great heart of the world. It's a beautiful quote. That we give up, we relinquish, or we renounce so that our little hearts, that small sense of self, may beat in unison with the great heart of the world. <clears throat> and so the other path factor, the next one, is goodwill. And it arises with the perception or the insight that all beings want to be happy. All beings seek happiness. However they might understand that, and then however that might condition their intention, and then however that intention conditions their action, all beings seek to be happy. And it... it tells us a lot about why people act the way they do. They're actually trying to be happy. Even people who do the worst things are, are trying to be happy. They think it will bring them happiness in some way, shape, or form. Even if they're misguided. The Dalai Lama said, I believe the ultimate aim of all human beings is to obtain happiness and a sense of fulfillment. I've always stressed the importance of combining both mental and material approach to achieving happiness for humankind. In other words, there, is, there are some basic needs we need, 
shelter and food and medicine and clothing. And then we need to find our own inner well-being, that they're both important. Um, we talk a lot about metta here, a lot about friendliness. I'm not going to go into it much right now. Um, the other path factor has to do with non-harming, the intention not to harm. And this is also, again, seeing, starting to see clearly, not only do all beings seek happiness, but all beings suffer. That if you just look around the room here and you actually look at people, you can see the suffering. We all have it. It's part of our... It's part of being a human being. It's not a mistake. It's not a problem. It's not that you did it wrong and you should go back, you know, or you're going to get penalized. No, it's just that's the deal on this realm of reality. Human beings suffer. And it's here. And it's really, and if you look carefully, it's everywhere, right? I mean, you know, poor Michael Jackson who led this kind of amazing life and was quite brilliant in his, and talented. And you can just see the suffering, right? You can just see the suffering. Amazing how much suffering there was. <clears throat> so the bigger picture starts to become part of our intention. Our intention is not only for our own well-being, our own happiness, but for all. And it really is part of the insight into seeing our non-separateness or the unity of things. That the Dharma manifests in all its uh, uh, unique ways, and you can just look around the room and see that, but the uniqueness and the uniqueness may come through, whether it's through religion or through nationality or through race or through gender orientation or gender or, excuse me, sexual orientation or gender. However, the uniqueness manifests, which it does here, there is an underlying unity that is also here. And I'll read you a story that I just read by a Vietnam vet. He was talking about being in Vietnam Christmas 1970 and he was on his way to uh, somewhere and he encountered three local farmers wearing the straw hats that the Vietnamese farmers would wear and they worked on the base and when he saw them, and he was a young man, he thought of the three wise men, right? It was Christmas time. And he thought of the three wise men of the nativity story. And in a naive earnestness, I asked them if they celebrated Christmas. And they smiled, and one said, no, we're Buddhists. And he says, that simple statement opened my mind to the fact that I was an other there. Six months later, my otherness had become raw. I felt I was on the wrong side. I felt fiercely loyal to my fellow soldiers, but horrified by the atrocities of war. After I returned home, I felt worthless. Protesting the war brought no relief, only brief jail time. 
I took an assortment of drugs, suffered a failed marriage, and spiraled downward. Several years of therapy allowed me to manage my emotions well enough that I could pursue a college degree, remarry, father children, but there was always an underlying self-loathing. In October of 1993, 23 years after he was there at the war, I picked up the paper and read about a company that organized bicycle tours of Vietnam. I knew right away that this was what I needed, and I signed up for a 1,200-mile bike ride. On the highway near, in, near Vinh One, I stopped to admire a Vietnamese farmer's tidy plot and small home. He spoke a smattering of English, and I spoke even less Vietnamese. But we pantomimed and discovered years ago we'd been soldiers on different sides of the war. With that, he embraced me. After he let go, I collapsed by the side of the road, racked by sobs, unable to go on riding. Dien, a Vietnamese man who was also on the bike ride, laid his hand on my shoulder and said, John, you are a good man. It became clear to me at that moment, right then, that there were no sides, no other. There had never been. So the, the inclination towards renunciation and then especially towards goodwill and compassion is based on the wisdom, the understanding that we're all here together, that there is no other. Even though there's uniqueness, even though there's diversity, there is no other. Let's sit for a minute before we end, please. Mm. And we'll end, I'll read you the Dalai Lama's intention that he makes, I'm pretty sure, every day. And this is something you can do in whatever form you would like. You can always wake up in the morning or make an intention. May my day be, may, may my heart be filled with loving kindness today. May I act wisely today. Uh, may I be skillful in my actions with my family or friends or at work today. And you just make the intention and then you let it go. You're inclining the heart and mind in a certain direction. And here's the Dalai Lama's uh, uh, intention. He says, for as long as space endures and for as long as living beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. For as long as space endures and for as long as living beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the suffering of this world. Right? I mean, you know, poor Michael Jackson, who led this kind of amazing life and was quite brilliant in his and talented, and you can just see the suffering, right? You can just see the suffering. 
amazing how much suffering there was. <clears throat> so the bigger picture starts to become part of our intention. Our intention is not only for our own well-being, our own happiness, but for all. And it really is part of the insight into seeing our non-separateness or the unity of things. That the Dharma manifests in all its uh, uh, unique ways, and you can just look around the room and see that, but the uniqueness and the uniqueness may come through, whether it's through religion or through nationality or through race or through gender orientation or gender or, excuse me, sexual orientation or gender. However, the uniqueness manifests, which it does here, there is an underlying unity that is also here. And I'll read you a story that I just read by a Vietnam vet. He was talking about being in Vietnam Christmas 1970 and he was on his way to uh, somewhere and he encountered three local farmers wearing the straw hats that the Vietnamese farmers would wear and they worked on the base and when he saw them, and he was a young man, he thought of the three wise men, right? It was Christmas time. And he thought of the three wise men of the nativity story. And in a naive earnestness, I asked them if they celebrated Christmas. And they smiled and one said, no, we're Buddhists. And he says, that simple statement opened my mind to the fact that I was an other there. Six months later, my otherness had become raw. I felt I was on the wrong side. I felt fiercely loyal to my fellow soldiers, but horrified by the atrocities of war. After I returned home, I felt worthless. Protesting the war brought no relief, only brief jail time. I took an assortment of drugs, suffered a failed marriage, and spiraled downward. Several years of therapy allowed me to manage my emotions well enough that I could pursue a college degree, remarry, father children, but there was always an underlying self-loathing. In October of 1993, 23 years after he was there at the war, I picked up the paper and read about a company that organized bicycle tours of Vietnam. I knew right away that this was what I needed and I signed up for a 1200 mile bike ride. On the highway near, in, near Vinh One. I stopped to admire a Vietnamese farmer's tidy plot and small home. He spoke a smattering of English and I spoke even less Vietnamese. But we pantomimed and discovered years ago we'd been soldiers on different sides of the war. With that, he embraced me. After he let go, I collapsed by the side of the road, racked by sobs, unable to go on riding. Dien, a Vietnamese man who was also on the bike ride, laid his hand on my shoulder and said, John, you are a good man. It became clear to me at that moment, right then, that there were no sides, no other. There had never been. So the 
the inclination towards renunciation and then especially towards goodwill and compassion is based on the wisdom, the understanding that we're all here together, that there is no other. Even though there's uniqueness, even though there's diversity, there is no other. So let's sit for a minute before we end, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.